0: Well, open your Bibles with me this morning, the book of Matthew, chapter 4. I think like half the congregation has a cough this morning. The moment you say that, everybody wants to cough. It's the way it is. Matthew, chapter 4, this morning, as we continue our journey in the gospel of Matthew, um, we get to look at a text that, as I was meditating on it, studying it this week, um, began to realize that. I've, I've heard this passage a lot because I, I had the, the privilege to grow up in church life. And as I was working through it, I um, was reminded of how little comfort or hope I got from this passage growing up. Because it feels so far removed from my daily experience. And yet it was supposed to give me all this hope and encouragement for how you handle and deal with temptation. But it felt just so different from the ways my temptations seemed to come. And it really honestly wasn't until, I, I would say, within the last uh, 10, 15 years maybe, uh, that it began to bring hope and encouragement to my heart and to my life. And I think I began to understand it a different way. I, so I'm not faulting previous uh, pastors, teachers, what have you. We can lay all that on my you know, dullness, my slowness to, to grasp concepts. But coming to it this morning, recognizing, um, when I was actually talking to a friend this week, it's like, how do I? I'm wrestling with how to preach this text. We have the temptation of Christ. We have these three moments. Do I do I just work very slowly through this and take one a week? Do I just do big picture view? How do we how do we understand that? And I think ultimately landing uh, this morning here. That seeing the son in the wilderness gives great hope to God's other sons and daughters. Now, I've just told you that I wrestled most of my life not believing that. And so I feel like I've set a bar that we now have to achieve, which that's okay. So uh, you could even approach the sermon this morning thinking, did he prove it? Did, did, is, is this true? Is this real? And that conflict existing in your own heart and mind, not offensive to me at all, because if I was sitting listening to a sermon like this 10 or 15 years ago, I would have thought, prove it. And so I don't fault you. I don't feel judged by you. So um, to come after it that way. But maybe to introduce the text this way, um, let's first read it. And then, then I want to talk about maybe a way to approach the text in a way that will help us to apply it ultimately to our hearts and, frankly, to glean the hope that is intended by God's word for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, uh, three of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record the temptation of Christ. Mark gives it two verses. Luke gives it something like uh, 10 or 11 verses. John doesn't deal with it at all. Um, So Matthew and Luke are your two longest accounts, and they differ a little bit in ways that are not (coughs) super important, but the nuances will help us, and we'll unpack that as we go. But And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. They say that 80% of people, 80% of drivers, think that they are better than the average, which means at least 30% of them are delusional. Now, we, if you've lived in Columbia for any length of time, you already know that that's true, that we are surrounded by delusional drivers. They lack self-awareness. A recent Harvard Business Review article cited that researchers say that roughly 95% of people think that they are self-aware. And so out of even our group this morning, if you were to ask us, typically about 95% of us would say that we are self-aware and that we we know who we are and we see who we are and we understand how we communicate and how we impact others and what our words and actions say to others. And yet the reality is actually only about 10 to 15 percent of people are. Uh, And so even if we were to poll us this morning, most of us actually lack self-awareness in some significant ways. Now the Harvard Business Review article goes on and presses the point, and really it's dealing in the workplace, but Just to help us understand what we mean, what is self-awareness? It's an understanding of who you are, but it's also, and this is really key, an understanding of how you come across to others. It's not easy. And that's why 85 to 95% of us are on the struggle bus of self-awareness. We're really bad at it. And so it gives markers of folks in the business world, in the corporate world or in the workplace who struggle and some indications, indices of this, do they do they refuse to listen to or accept critical feedback from others? They're they're prone to just immediately believe it's not true or it's an attack or they don't know me well enough. If they really knew me, they wouldn't think that way about me. Do they refuse to listen to or accept critical feedback? Do they fail to take the perspective or viewpoint of others? They don't put themselves in the shoes of others. They don't, they don't process through life or a situation from somebody else's perspective and ask, how do they see it? How do they understand it? Uh, people who lack self-awareness wrestle doing that or don't do it at all. Do they fail at reading the room and tailoring what they're saying and how they say it to the situation? Um, do, they, do they have an inability to, to really understand what needs to be said, and when it needs to be said. Are they hurtful without realizing it? When they do things that are painful and damage others in their workplace and seem oblivious to it. My prezi isn't working? I'll get there in just a moment. Thank you, guys. Now, all of that is very different from someone who's a bully who just doesn't care if they hurt other people or if they are coming across in a way that they shouldn't or if they fail to read the room. This is becoming the bane of my existence. Our computer, My computer lacks awareness, right? It blinked over here. There it is. Good. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Dalton. Appreciate it. And so <clears throat> when we deal with somebody, now let me just ask you this, and so this is not a test of you. How many of you immediately can think of people that you either work with or do life with, you're like, yeah, they lack self-awareness? <laughs> I saw one hand went up like, I mean, it was like, it was like we're a rocket to the moon, man. Like, that's, clearly that's the world they live in. Um. But this lack of self-awareness can extend spiritually. Like we can actually lack spiritual self-awareness. What happens when we lack spiritual self-awareness? A failure, failure to see who we really are and how and why we act the way we do. Now, on the positive side, we should seek to know ourselves and understand ourselves. Uh, The Bible calls us to. It calls us to a level of self-awareness. One example would just be uh, in our spiritual gifts. What are your gifts and how can you use them? You should be increasing and growing in spiritual self-awareness for how can I love and how can I serve and how can I bring peace to a situation? How can I be an advocate to the weak or the hurting or the shame-filled? How can I grow in my love for others. How can I know where to mature? I had someone tell me years ago, because um, I kept using this phrase, this question, I borrowed it straight from Paul Tripp. I don't know why they thought it was original with me. But where do you need to grow most and where can you grow first to be like Jesus? And that frustrated them. And and I think it frustrated them when I think back on it in some ways because that, that number first or most was a hang up to them. And all we're trying to do, though, is come after the concept that there's so many ways for us to grow to be like Jesus. Sometimes that can be overwhelming. And so we, like, just get discouraged and we stop chasing our sanctification. That's all Tripp was trying to do is is say, focus in on one. You'll be okay, right? But that takes spiritual self-awareness. Where do I need to grow? How can I grow? Paul advocates for healthy self-awareness of our gifts and our abilities with humility in Romans 12:3, "For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned." He is saying biblically, spiritually, know yourself. He is. In a negative way, he challenges Paul, or Paul challenges Timothy in the pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. What happens, though, if we lack spiritual self-awareness about our flesh, our sin bins, and our areas of temptation? Just this past fall, we did a series on worldliness and really began to understand that worldliness is the world system that Satan is is controlling, intending to appeal to our flesh. And so if you don't understand that dynamic, you'll think by a list of rules or running from all this stuff, that's going to keep you safe. But you really need to know and understand your own flesh bits as you chase sanctification. It's self-awareness. Well, in the temptation of Christ, I think if we, if we approach this text with a lack of spiritual self-awareness... It'll fly right over our head. We'll, we'll see Christ's temptations, and we'll be like, this doesn't even seem to match mine. I don't understand what's happening here. Um, we'll miss the hope that's intended to be there for us. I mean, because my guess is your temptations don't look very much like this any more than mine do. I mean, Satan has never shown up and been speaking to me. It's never, he's never appeared. There's never been a demon in front of me saying, you know, hey, do this. I'm like, I'm a Gen X kid, right? So I grew up with Nancy Reagan, just say no. Uh, some of you will remember this. And there was these commercials on TV about how to say no to drugs. And I, like, just be, I'm living on the west side of Baltimore, which was like the heroin highway from the Jamaican imports of the day. It was the murder capital of the United States. We had some dope folks. The first time I saw someone freebase heroin, I was 13 in the eighth grade and stood in the bathroom watched a kid cook heroin and inject it. Like, I look back now, I'm like, man, that is awful young to be aware of these things. Like, and I remember this commercial on TV, they had these after-school specials, and there was this commercial on TV, like, you're walking up a dark stairwell in an apartment building, and the guy, as you walk by, he goes, here, try this, it'll make you feel good. And they had him echo, it'll make you feel good, 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 good. And I'm like, that is not the experience of being offered drugs, folks. That ain't the way this rolls. It's, it. I mean... I'm around it, and I'm telling you, that's not the way it's offered. And so it felt so distant from me that I'm like, that's, we laughed about it. We had dared to keep kids off drugs, just say no. So me and my buddy Brian ground up a bunch of oregano and some other things and pre- proceeded to pretend to sell one another weed. We got yet another time. I spent time visiting with Mr. Pancake, the assistant principal of discipline at our school. Um, but it just felt so removed. Like, this isn't the way it works for me. Satan doesn't show up like this for me. And so it feels so removed. On top of that, on top of that, um, when I'm tempted, so think of a time you were tempted even this week. So I can think of a moment in my life this week, I was tempted about something. Quoting a verse didn't just make it, boom, stop, I'm good. Right? Uh, quoting the passage, somebody did something this week they shouldn't have done, they were wrong they were, they, what they, the way they handled it was wrong, it was against one of my kids it wasn't my kids, it was against them and I was angry, like simply saying, be angry and said not, does not oh suddenly the clouds lifted and I was joy filled and sweet and loving and kind this feels removed from me and so how in the world does this actually help I've never, <laughs> shocking I've never fasted 40 days But I'm guessing none of you have either. But I know what it's like to be hungry, and I know what it's like to overindulge, and not just in physical appetites, right? And so when we come to this text, I I want us to understand this. If we don't have enough self-awareness and a willingness, frankly, a humility this morning to approach the text and ask, how does this really, really speak into my life? And what's really going on in my life? And how can I understand this? And where can I see what the son is doing here? And, and how can this help me as a son or daughter of the king? You will miss this troop because it really is intended for us to see the son. That's the way he's being presented. Matthew structures his intentionally to emphasize the sonship of Christ and his role. Seeing the son in the wilderness will give great hope to God's sons and daughters in our fight against against sin. And so let me prove it. Let's, let's just prove it from the text and walk our way through it. First of all, he is being presented as the perfect son for us. This is the next step in Matthew preparing us for the public ministry of Christ. He gave us his genealogy, the genesis, you might remember. He said, here's the genesis of Jesus. And then he said, here's the genesis of his ministry. He gives us the forerunner, John the Baptist. He gives us the baptism next. He gives us now the temptation of Christ. And then we will find him calling the disciples and beginning his public ministry. So this is kind of the last step in the preparation of the foundation laying for us to see who Jesus really, really is. Jesus is going to begin to preach. He's going to, Matthew's going to give us a broad brush statement about the content of the ministry of Jesus, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He will then give us the lengthy sermon, Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, which is intended to show us this is the primary message. Jesus didn't just preach the sermon once. He preached that entire sermon multiple times in many other places, preached portions of the sermon at other times. This is large content. This is what Matthew is doing structurally. And so this is really, really important here. And what he has to prove to us is the kind of son that Jesus really is. And so the first thing we can do is we can understand the nature of temptation and sin from the text. It is different for Jesus than it is for us. And that difference is really important and vital to understand and to see what they're doing here. Now, John, as I mentioned a few moments ago, does not cover this at all in his gospel. Uh, Mark and Luke both do. Mark gives it those two verses. Luke, Luke deals extensively, but Luke emphasizes something different with his account of the temptation of Christ. And what Luke emphasizes is how Jesus is a new Adam. Now, if you just keep your finger in your Bible here, I, just want, I want you to see it from the text so you can understand what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 4. It's dangerous. I'm going off notes. Risky. Um, Let me just show you this to you. And and actually, some of you have uh, your Bible on your iPad or phone, so this is much harder for you. Um, But Luke 1, we have the John the Baptist, the preparation for him, Mary and Elizabeth. Luke 2, we get the birth of Jesus Christ. That is the lengthy birth story lots of families love to read at Christmas time. That's wonderful. Um, We get to, to Luke chapter 3, we have John the Baptist preparing. And then we kind of have this weird thing. You get halfway through Luke 3, verse 23, and now he begins the genealogy. Now, what do you notice about the genealogy that's different than what Matthew does, besides the fact that he chooses some different names? Notice who he begins with in Luke 3. He begins with who? Jesus. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as he was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. I'm not going to read all these, but he backtracks because where does he want to end? This is an intentional decision. The Gospels are sermons. And Luke is making an intentional decision as a preacher of the truth. Look where he ends at the end of Luke chapter 3, verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He wants to run into the temptation of Christ, emphasizing Jesus is the new Adam. Paul makes it much clearer later in Romans that Jesus is the new and better Adam. For by one man's sin entered the world, so now also salvation for many comes through one man. And so no matter what Matthew does, part of the emphasis here is of Jesus being a new Adam. So when he begins to tell this story of the temptation, Luke's readers would have been thinking, garden. What happened in the garden? So if we go back to Matthew that can help us to understand even what he is doing in the very nature of sin and temptation itself. And what he is telling us is if you go all the way back to the garden, you have these three core areas, every person, every member of humanity is tempted. And we spent time with this back in the fall, and there's no text that cites them as explicitly as 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so in the garden, you see it voiced primarily through Eve. Adam as well engages in this, though. You have these three kind of broad categories of sin. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And that's exactly what's happening with Jesus. You have these three broad, every temptation you or I face can be put under one of these three broad categories. Every single one of them. That's like step one of spiritual self-awareness when it comes to temptation. And it is immensely helpful in your fight against sin to know which one of those this particular temptation is coming under. It takes time, effort, and frankly, the Holy Spirit's work in the believer to understand and see yourself this way. What's really going on? What's really happening? <clears throat> so when we come to it and Jesus begins to unpack or, or Matthew begins to unpack for us what's happening, we can see these. So the first one, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What is the real temptation that's happening here? And all the way back in the garden, this began when Eve looks at the fruit, and the text says that she saw that it was good for food. All of us are born with desires. God creates humanity with desires. We carry them with us. Saved person, lost person, doesn't matter. We are built in inherently with needs and desires. We have needs. You can boil them down. You can think, first of all, physical survival, right? So we need things like oxygen. But you need food to live. So your body and my body sends us signals when you're hungry. And you need to eat. Um, the, these, these latest weight loss drugs, how do they work? They suppress your body's signals that you're hungry so you eat less. They're they're unlocking the chemical component the way we're wired. You have to do something from the outside to shut that down in a person. And so, you know, some of us have the genetics. It's like, you're hungry all the time. No, you're not, but like your genetics, yes, you are, right? So we got to supplant because we have this need. You need to sleep. If you don't sleep, you will go crazy and die. You can actually live longer without food than you can without sleep. We think of it, we think of a need for sex. But we all know you don't need sex. But there's a deep desire in most people. But even if you take the sexual intimacy component out of it, I'll guarantee you a need that is there, and that is connection with other people. It doesn't have to be physical intimacy, but a connection with others. We are not made to be alone. If you take a child and you leave it alone, they will not grow mentally. It is considered abuse. You stunt them. They don't learn how to speak right, walk right, or relate to others. And if you do that for the first few years of the child, they will never overcome that barrier. That's why solitary confinement for a full-grown man or woman will drive them insane. They've noticed the brain shrinks, and it kills parts of the brain just by making them be alone all the time. We're made for connection. It's a need. And so we have these needs that we're made with. The problem is in this temptation and the lust of the flesh this way is that my need begins to define me. And I have to have it all the time. The need becomes my God. And so in this moment, the temptation to Jesus is a cry to say your need of food should become paramount to you. When you are thinking in an introspective way and you begin to realize what is the need or desire in my life, is this sin temptation in such a way that it's driving me for how I'm now doing life? There's all kinds of chemical ways this can happen, right? You will build super highways in your brain when you feel like you're satisfying a need your body begins to learn through dopamine and oxytocin release that I have this intense longing and need, I fill it with X, boom, and now I feel better. And you keep doing that, and then your body suddenly starts saying, I need, I need, it has a trigger, wants fulfillment. Did you know that chemically, chemically speaking, nicotine, which is one of the most powerful, they have done studies, chemically speaking, within two weeks, your body... It's not physical that it's craving the nicotine. It's mental. I'm not dismissing it. That's a brutal reality. It's a it's a horrific reality. So you will be convinced, your brain will be telling you, if you don't have this, you're going to go into withdrawal. You actually won't, but your brain will tell you that you will. And it's such a powerful force and component. This is exactly the kind of thing, I'm not knocking tobacco. Like, but this is what Satan also understands and wants to play off of. Make your need a demand and then fulfill it. It's true about everything, honestly, no matter the habit. You can do it actually with exercise. Exercise. You can build in a habit of a eating disorder, of bulimia or anorexia. You, you can build in a habit of self-harm. You can, you can build in a habit of a fight, of an argument. Like you, you have all this tension, you have this moment of oh, anger release, and you feel better. Satan knows how we're made. And so he wants to appeal to this. Living as humanity means living with desires some of these desires are even needs. We desire and need food to live, sleep, and connection to others. Matthew's pointing out this reality. This is not the only moment where Jesus would have experienced these desires and needs. Luke in his, Matthew when you read his, it feels like Jesus fasted and prayed 40 days, then Satan showed up with temptation. Luke points out it was the whole time. But just to condense the story, this is the way they tell the story. Notice what it tells us when it says Jesus was hungry. He wants us to know because he was truly man, he experienced these desires and needs. He understands that. He moves on from those, though, and he goes to pride of life. You see it in verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple... And said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. He is misquoting scripture, and he's quoting a passage that's about about you tripping in the journey of life and God upholding you. And he's trying to make this something completely different than what it is. I don't even have time in the sermon this morning to talk about the myriad of ways scripture gets twisted by our flesh, the world, and the devil to try to justify and excuse our sin. It is one tactic of the enemy. It's a temptation here for Jesus to validate his identity and the care of God the Father. It's a test of his greatness. It's a belief that you are or deserve to be better than other people around you. It's a resting in your own greatness, the greatness you have done, or the greatness of what you might accomplish. It's interesting with Christ that he is greater. He already is. He is the Son of God. And notice that that's the phrase that he uses. And back in verse 3 when he said, when the first temptation was if you are the Son of God. Remember what God has just declared from heaven at his baptism? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan's like, if you are, then do this. Well, this is another test that if you actually are the Son of God, then prove the affection of the Father for you. Prove that God is for you. Prove that God cares about you. Prove that, that you are great. And prove it now. What he's saying is the reality of your greatness isn't enough. Prove it. Don't be secure in your identity of how God has made you speaking to us or who you claim to be, but prove it to others. We see it in the garden. Eve looks at the fruit and she says it's good for food. And she says it was good to make one wise. Remember, Eve shows up second. Adam's already there. She receives her name from her husband. There's already this structure, and so the temptation or the lie from Satan to Eve was that somehow God is insecure about who you are, doesn't wants to hold you back, he wants to hold you down, but you can achieve greatness. It's the same temptation for us. It's a compulsion to control God to prove our worth, to prove our value. You ever had to spend time with someone intensely insecure? They are like a black hole of affirmation. It doesn't no matter how much you say to them. It doesn't matter how much you affirm them. It doesn't matter how kind you are. It's never enough. Or maybe you are like that. Man, I can't tell you how much insecurities have raged in my life. And it's like a craving, a constant craving to prove value and worth. It's not enough that for God to say, you are mine, I am your God, and I love you. It doesn't feel like enough. There can be all kinds of reasons a person struggles that way. And so this temptation category of this need for greatness. And what's ironic is for most people, there are some people that really is about greatness, right? I've got to be the, I don't know, president of the student body or president, or I've got to be the top dog at work, or I've got to be this, I've got to be this. The summit manifests that way. Most people, just experientially, Steve's opinion time, most people, it manifests not in a desire to be above everyone else. They feel like they're below everyone else. It's a desire for them to say, I just want to be the same. I just want to, they, 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 miss, they miss the temptation because they think it's just arriving to equality, not greatness. I, I just got to be there because of their insecurities and fears. They feel so much less. The third temptation then is the lust of the eyes. It's brought to bear with the display of the kingdoms of the world. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. It's a seeking of fulfillment apart from God. There's an inherent beauty in it. Uh, Eve sees it. She sees that it's good for food. She sees that it's good to make one wise. And she sees that it's beautiful. It's attractive. All of these things will ultimately be Christ one day. He really will be ruler of all. God says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But this is to get there without the suffering that must come first. We all have ambition. We appreciate beautiful things. We might disagree, and beauty is in the eye of the beholder to a a degree. And to an extent, we all appreciate the aesthetic beauty of some kind. We long for things like success and safety. These are gifts from God. God gives us lots of kind gifts, gifts of relationships and gifts of friendships, gifts even of things, gifts of jobs, gifts, gifts of uh, delightful things that we enjoy, beautiful things, art, clothes, uh, possessions, and, and, and they're gifts and kind gifts from God. But in the lust of the eyes, we begin to worship the gifts instead of the giver. Instead of it driving our hearts in gratitude to the one who's given us all things, James tells us, he's the father of light who gives all good gifts, we start to worship the gifts instead. We make it more about the stuff and the things. It's seeking for us to find our fulfillment in the things. This is terrifying to us. What, is, what are your biggest fears of life? If I were to say, what, would you, what are you afraid of losing the most and 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 maybe it is a thing for you, this thing. For most people, it's it's some relationship or person. It's not universal. But most lots of people, that's what it is. And my the fear of the loss of this thing. And I'm not even like I'm not even shooting at that. Like, like of course you are. But what happens is that can easily, it can, it can become making an idol of that thing or person. That job, that career, that accolade, that success. There was a uh, vice president of a university. Um, she began to have a lot of problems with her boss. Her, her claim is that he was bullying her. Uh, his claim is that she wasn't doing a good job and she didn't like to be critiqued. So we don't know what the truth is. We, nobody know. How would you know? They're investigating. How would you know? The sad reality, though, is when it became clear her job was going to be gone, she took her own life. Now, I just want to say this with unbelievable kindness. As someone who has struggled in very dark places myself, I don't, I don't judge this, this dear lady. But I am saying when we, when we go down that path, right, we are saying the loss of that thing makes life not worth living anymore. And we have begun to worship a thing, a gift instead of the giver. These are ways that it is important for us to understand ourselves and how it's working. Are you beginning to see how the temptation of Christ, while it may feel, On the surface, very different from your daily experience of temptation. It's actually all about your daily experience of temptation. And so Jesus goes through this, and he's experiencing this in front of us because it proves who he is. Matthew's presenting Jesus as the perfect son, who both replaces all the failed sons and daughters, but also paves the way for all the sons and daughters of God. Now, I've just walked you through, and I showed you how it links to Luke, and Luke makes that primary emphasis, and I wanted you to see that because that emphasis it remains. But that's not the same emphasis that Matthew makes. Matthew's genealogy is a couple chapters ago. He doesn't distinctly say, here's a son of Adam, son of God, boom, here you go, let me prove it to you. Instead, Matthew restructures the temptations, he flips the roles of two of them, but he's very explicit about showing how Jesus is the true and better son. Let me show you to you, when Jesus answers, all of these are quotations from Deuteronomy. Jesus answers in verse 4, he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8.3. He goes on, and Jesus says to him in verse 7, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's the second quote, again, from Moses in Deuteronomy 6.16. And then again in verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That is a quotation from Deuteronomy 6, 13. Now there's a lot of scripture Jesus could have used. You have, there's a a multitude of Psalms he could have quoted about trusting and believing the father, about the care and the provision of the father. He could have gone back to Exodus. He could have told whole stories of God's care for his people. But he doesn't. He specifically is choosing from a particular passage of the Old Testament to make a point. Matthew is telling us this explicitly because all of these come from a critical moment in Israel's history. What happens in Deuteronomy is this is happening right at the end of the 40 years of wilderness wandering. You remember the story. They come out of Egypt, the the mass exodus out of Egypt. They travel through the wilderness. They come to the brink of the promised land. All the people say, no way, we don't buy it. We're not going in. We're terrified. God says, fine, you're going to spend the next 40 years wandering, frankly, till this whole generation dies off, and then the next generation will enter. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. God gives them water. God gives them manna from heaven. He makes it so their clothes don't fall apart. Their shoes last for 40 years. Man, I've got, I've got teenage boys. Shoes last about three months, right? Like, these, like everything lasts for 40 years. The generation dies off, which if you do the math of how many millions of people are, that is a lot of people dying every day just so you know. Like it's a lot of death that they did for 40 years. They get to the end of 40 years. Moses now is preaching a sermon. Deuteronomy, uh, which literally means like the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is a whole sermon from Moses of him addressing this people before he dies and they go into the promised land. So the big picture context is this is happening as Moses is giving a charge, a challenge to them of how to be better than their parents be good sons and daughters as opposed to the sons and daughters who took all the gold and made a golden calf and who resisted God's leading and who didn't believe and who whined and said we want to go back to Egypt and who didn't like it because they didn't have enough meat to eat and uh, complained eventually about the manna from heaven don't be like that Be a better son and daughter. And to challenge them, he he tells them, Deuteronomy 1 through 3, he recites all these failures to obey. Deuteronomy 4 through 11 is Moses' call to be faithful. And then from chapter 12 on is when he regives the law overall with all these distinctive truths and applications. Deuteronomy 5, so 1 through 3 failures. Chapter 4 starts telling them, Challenging them. Deuteronomy 5, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And in Deuteronomy 6, we have what is called the Shema, the daily prayer of the Jews. And it's this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Everything else Moses says to them flows out of this truth. Why do we obey God? Why do we resist temptation? Why are we good, we'll define that more in a minute, sons and daughters? Because we love him. How do we love him? With all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Why do you fight for holiness? There can be all kinds of reasons, right? Um, if you think about, let's take one uh, common sin struggle. We'll take moral purity. Why do you fight for moral purity? You may fight for moral purity because you don't want to ruin your marriage. Good. You may fight for moral purity because of the shame that would come. Good. I don't have any problem with that. You may fight for moral purity because of scars of your past. Fine. I don't have a problem with that. And on any given day, any of those motives may be what God is help, help using to help you by the power of His Spirit to resist temptation. But I want you to know this the strongest, the most powerful, the most specialized weapon you can bring to bear on a fight for moral purity or any sin struggle is you love God more than whatever this is. I don't care what this is. And so on any given day, if you fought for what, against your sin struggle and you said, no, I'm not going to do that because I could lose all these things because of the consequences in my life, because of the hardship, because I've already experienced terrible things and I don't want to experience Fine, I'm going to look at you all day and say, praise God today that you didn't give in to that temptation. I'm not judging that. But I am telling you, that everything in the most powerful reason, everything relies on this. Our temptation in the fight is a worship moment. What will we love most? And so Moses gives them the Ten Commandments, but right after it, he wants them to know why they should pursue the Ten Commandments. Why should they pursue holiness and righteousness? Why should they, should they go after it? Because God's sitting on the throne in these massive black robes and a long white wig like the days of old or in British commons, and he's ready to bring down the executioner acts upon them? No. And this is where most believers begin to even struggle because you get saved and you start hearing all these things about how God is your father, God is your father, God is your father. father, But you're still trying to live in the terror fear of when you were lost to drive you to be holy. And ministers capitalize on this. I've shared this with you before. I grew up in a system where I heard things like one day you'll be you're gonna appear before God and everything you've ever done is gonna be on a big screen for everyone to ever see. There's seven billion people on the planet right now. So every wrong thought I've ever thought, every wrong deed I've ever done, every wrong dream I've ever had, and I was terrified. And I could never how do I how do I equate that with God as my father? What would you think of me as a father if I stood up here and tried to broadcast to you every little thing I believe anyone in my family has ever done wrong? And so it's like, how do I even comprehend this? And it wasn't until someone began to challenge me with the concept which should drive you is yes, you don't want to sin against God, but primarily because you love him. That's like, I spent most of my life trying to fight temptation with one hand tied behind my back rather than the true weapons. And so he says this, Moses declares this, and everything else he says from this point forward in Deuteronomy 6 through chapter 11 is kind of a fleshing out of this. And it's kind of like a declaration, this is how sons and daughters of God should act because they love God with all their what? With their heart, with their soul, and their strength. In other words, loving God is going to take effort. You don't coast into love in your friendships, in marriages, and relationships, and in your community. You've got to chase it, don't you? Oh, you know what? I'm just going to hit cruise control and be on easy street in this friendship. Kiss it, goodbye. It's gone. With your strength, with your mind, with your soul, with your heart, I'm going to chase it and chase it and chase it and chase it. And I'm going to tell you the great secret. When you're chasing hard this way, you are automatically running away from that thing. And I grew up thinking I was doing this number, fighting this all the time. And it was like nobody told me, chase this. By quoting Moses' commands to the sons and daughters of God, and then by obeying those commands, Jesus is showing what kind of son that he is. Listen, they weren't good sons and daughters, were they? Israel, go in and now take the promised land, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and um, obey him fully. What do they do? Pretty quickly, what do we got? Idolatry, cutting deals with some of the, the people in the, in the land because it ain't that hard. We don't want it that hard. We got the, the, our best king. Our best king is an adulterer and a murderer. Our next best king has more women than you can count and brings in Idolatry. We got his grandson sacrificing his own children to an idol in the valley of of Hinnom. Like, they didn't do a stellar job. We needed a new Adam. We also need new sons and daughters. And so in that, it points us to this truth then. Jesus is actually a son like us. And this is important for us to understand. Let's take another run at the text now. We're we're like going from airplane, we're like bringing this in for a landing, Right? So we've gone big picture, let's, let's get a little bit closer. Let's talk about the Spirit's role. Verse 1, chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the what? The Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There is a role that the Spirit is playing here in the life and person of Jesus Christ that is critical for you and I to understand in his fight against sin and our fight against sin. The temptation of Christ happens immediately following the demonstration of the Spirit. He saw the Spirit back in chapter 3, verse 16. John the Baptist testifies that he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And we talked about how that's the same language as the presence of God hovering over the faces of the waters in Genesis. And it's like saying this is a new creation, a new Adam. And now we have the Spirit bringing Jesus up into the wilderness. In verse 1, it says he leads him that way. It calls to mind Moses in Deuteronomy. He tells the children of Israel, God has led you to this point. Now to test you. This moment in Jesus' life is not a test the way you and I think of tests. You and I think of tests to expose what I know and what I don't know. Where will I fail or where will I succeed? This test is more like the season of the 72 dolphins record scratch what people widely believed even back then that they were going to be a fantastic team every year all the pundits like they all think that their team's gonna be a fantastic team i gotta own this like i'm a yankees fan so every year yankees fans are mad if we don't win the world series it's like there is a level of naive idiocy to us like i'm just gonna own that right Because we ain't going to win it every year. That's just the way it is. But before the 72 Dolphins, sports teams are like, oh, we're going to win it. This is our year. This year, we're the best team. You see it in college football all the time. We're the best team. We're the best team. How do you know the 72 Dolphins were the best team that year? They are the only team that had a completely perfect season. They didn't lose one game, and they won the Super Bowl. There's no argument, is there? It proved what was already true. But if they hadn't gone through the season in the Super Bowl, it's your opinion versus mine. If Jesus doesn't, Jesus was perfect, was sinless, was always going to be perfect and sinless, but if he doesn't go through this, it's not proven to any of us. But more critically, when we see things like this and we read the temptation of Christ, it may be, that you think, again, the way I thought for a long time. Jesus, though, doesn't have a sinful flesh. This is truth. He does not have a sin flesh like we do. He is perfectly sinless. This is why that he is conceived by the Spirit in Eve. He does not bear the sin flesh that you and I have. Every one of us is conceived a sinner. It, you know, <laughs> are people born naturally good or naturally bad? You bad. You bad. You bad, you bad to the bone. You all bad. Like, that's just the way it is. Steppenwolf is right, you bad. Um, Some of you like enough good music, you got that, but that's okay. Um, You're bad. We all bad. No, 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 no. This one's not bad. No, they bad. They bad. I'm not saying you're as bad as you could be. I'm not saying that everybody does the most wicked things that they could do, but we're all born with a sin nature. Jesus wasn't. So I used to read this and I was like, well, this is easy to resist. He doesn't have the flesh. Most of your and my temptation is happening this internal flesh that we're fighting. And it's like, the, then Satan constructs a world to appeal to it. And so, and so it feels different to us. But how does Jesus defeat sin? This is how Peter describes the life of ministry Darren read this morning. That's why it's such a key passage in Acts 10, 37-38. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. When and where was that anointing? Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Back with Peter in his sermon, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus could have used his own divinity to defeat Satan in these temptations. He chose not to, but instead to fight this fight in the power of the Spirit. By what power can you and I defeat temptation? The power of the Spirit. And just this way, he is showing us that he is a son like us. He didn't have to do it this way. He didn't have to go 40 days without food. Matthew declares he's hungry. He understood, he gets it. Then, secondarily, he's a son like us because the enemy's tactics are the same. Satan actually, like, he hasn't gotten very creative. Because he hasn't had to. His tactics with Jesus are the same as his tactics in the garden, which is to say they're the same as the tactics he uses with us. He is described as a serpent. Uh, One author described him this way. He is like a mobile digestive tract. That's what a snake is. It slithers. It's one long tube of digestion. In other words, it's built to consume and that's all it does. That's who Satan is. He is consumed by his own desires. And he wants us to be consumed by our desires as well. He comes at his hardest when we are weakest. He calls into question the love of God for us, our awareness of our own needs. He calls our need for self-preservation and says that's your supreme need. The claim that no one loves us or cares about us like we do. This, this belief that we walk to This is profoundly true of people that lack self-awareness. No one really knows me or understands me like me. I don't have to say this, but if you think that way, you've just demonstrated you're in that like 85% of people who lack self-awareness. The fact of the matter is we do a deplorable job of knowing and understanding who we are. We desperately need other people in our lives to help us to grasp and understand us. Satan is constructing this world, and he knows our sinful flesh is screaming out all the time, me, 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 me. So Satan builds a culture, a world culture to appeal to this, to make the most of who we are instead of making the most of who God is. And so Jesus now must point us to hope. And he is a son, and I love this phrase, straight from Russell Moore, who is fathered, not fed. As different as Jesus' experience seems in comparison to your and my daily experience, I hope, again, you've begun to see the profound overlap that what Jesus is going through by his own choosing and by the Spirit's leading is a demonstration categorically. The, the, The power of this is that it speaks to every human that's ever lived. I mean... What if it was just one sin area or uh, it was so specific and you read through it and you're like, but that's not what I struggle with. You would feel like, well, then Jesus can't grasp it and this truth isn't for me. But by going to these three broad categories that caused all of humanity to fall into sin, that First John tells us all of humanity wrestles with, he is giving hope to all of humanity. The hard work then is ours to do to understand it. How does this play out practically, though, and how can it point us to hope? First and foremost, you must bring both truth and trust to the fight. Each of the lies of Satan is met with a glorious truth that trusts the Father. All the way back in the garden, the core argument is God doesn't really have their best interests in mind. The lie is he doesn't love. So the truth is, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to choose to be fathered by him rather in this moment to be fed. What does he say? And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That's the test. Will you be fathered or will you be fed? And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you know what he's saying in that moment? He is saying, Despite all the ways I feel right now, the the hunger pains, the cry of my heart and life that this need is paramount and God's refusal to fill this need right now is a lack of love. That's the temptation. And if I believe that, I am now free to feed it however I want to feed it. My way, my time doesn't matter because this is a real need and God's not doing it. And instead, Jesus Decides against all the ways he feels, physically, even, I'm hungry, and says, No, there is something more important, and what's more important is my father. I'm going to choose in this moment to bring that truth to bear against the lies of my feelings, and I'm going to trust him. This is love. What's he do in verse 7? Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God's love for me does not exist for me to control or challenge with my insecurities and fears. My greatness is not what defines my life, but what defines my identity is God's love for me. His greatness over me. Who am I? Do you live a life resting in who God says you are? Some of you may have grown up with glorious heritages. I didn't. I got a bunch of slave owning, cotton stealing, runaway criminals. <laughs> yeah. so I'm just gonna be like everybody else in America. All my ancestors came over on uh, were at Plymouth Rock, and they were like. <laughs> and so it's not like you run around defining yourself. Oh, I'm the great great grandson of so and so, because like they were not a glorious person. So you don't want to link your identity to that. Like what? Who am? What is my identity? but to tell you that I'm a son, I'm a child, you are a daughter of God. The only thing that makes that profound is the identity of God. And so I am swallowed up in his greatness and I then can rest in my identity because Christ is in me and I am in him. This quest in this moment of Satan saying, manipulate God and make him say it now. And so what Jesus brings is truth and trust. Here's the truth. Nope, I'm going to trust God. And then the third one. The gifts of this life are intended to be enjoyed, but they're to drive us to the giver, not to the gifts themselves. So here's all the kingdoms, and you can have it all without suffering. There's no cross, there's no torture, there's no rejection, there's no betrayal. You can have it all. I'll give you all this. It's already God's plan that you rule over all the kingdoms. We don't need to do that full plan with all the suffering. I've got a better way. You can do it without the suffering. You can have it all. You can have your best life now. You can achieve it all. You can get it. You can get it. You can get it. And there doesn't have to be the cross. There doesn't have to be the following. There doesn't have to be the yoke. There doesn't have to be the burden. There doesn't have to be any of it. There doesn't have to be deny or love me more than father, mother, sister, brother. There doesn't have to be any of that. You can have it now. And Jesus once again brings truth and trust. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In other words, whatever his plan is, is the plan. There is no other plan. The pathway here for Jesus is the same pathway that exists for you and I. We must bring truth and trust to our daily sin fight. We must choose to be fathered instead of fed. And it's the truth that Satan's going to go after the most. God doesn't actually really love you, does he? Why do we love God? We love him because he first loved us. And then we're told, as sons and daughters, love him with all your mind, soul, and strength. Chase it. Chase hard after it. And Satan knows if he can snip that link, we'll do whatever feels best for us. I feel this need. He's not meeting it. I feel this deep longing. He's not affirming me. I see this thing that would make me happy. I want it now. And so by Jesus going through this, he is demonstrating to us how we can fight. And so it actually brings hope. How does it bring hope? It brings hope because testing revealed the sinless Jesus we needed. Because Jesus goes through this, it's not just claims of his sinlessness. It's not just claims of his perfection. It is a demonstration. He knows what it's like to go to war and he came out victorious. It brings us hope because his victory shows us victory for us is possible also. Does an army have to win every fight to be victorious? They don't, do they? Can I just tell you You don't have to win every fight to be victorious. Human condition, you're not going to win every sin fight. But your victory is uniquely wound up, bound up, and tied to his victory. And he is calling you into the fight. And it's interesting because the righteous man is not defined by never falling in Proverbs, but by getting up when he does. Your father is not standing over you, shouting at you in anger like a small one-year-old learning to walk. Get up. What's your problem? He is picking you up, putting you on your feet, and he's saying, walk to daddy. Come to me. I love you. It brings us hope because Jesus gets it. He understands. He empathizes. He's compassionate toward us while calling us to follow him. It brings us hope because it gives us a fight plan. Here's your fight plan. We're all done. Here's your fight plan. Start to think about your sin categorically. Lest the eyes, Lest the flesh, pride of life. Start to recognize the lies that you are believing about who God is and what he can do. Start building in your heart a deeper trust for the Heavenly Father because as you chase Him, you will automatically be running from sinful things. Seeing the Son in the wilderness gives great hope to God's other sons and daughters. May God bless us and encourage us with the victory of Christ and may we say consistently, "Begone, Satan! Because it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Father, help us to serve you only. Help our hearts to be encouraged with the fight. Father, thank you that Jesus was victorious, perfectly victorious. He never sinned and he never failed. Thank you, Father. It gives our hearts encouragement to know that victory is possible and doable. And the reality is we feel like it. We want to say right now, we can't do it. But you know that? You know that it's in the power of the Spirit. Help us be a people who aggressively chase a deepening love of the Father because as we are chasing a love of the Father, we are automatically running away from a love of ourself and sin. We pray this together in Jesus' name and all God's people in the fight said, amen. amen. Please stand with us for our closing song.